Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamara Sami. Later on in the programme, a year after a terror attack here in London, we'll be hearing from a politician who tried to save the life of a policeman outside the British Houses of Parliament. There was 40 minutes worth of, of you know, trying to save his life. And very sadly, you know, we arrived with a pulse and very sadly um, the injuries were so enormous that that wasn't possible this, on this occasion. 40 minutes of trying to save his life. You must have been I mean, physically, mentally absolutely drained at the end of that. It was. And what also, also interesting was an, an eerie silence came over an, an area where you're so used to the noise of car horns and engines and everything. And then suddenly there was absolutely nothing. More on that interview later on in the programme. First, though, disgusting, insulting unacceptable. That's how the Kremlin has today characterised the comparison made between President Putin hosting this year's Football World Cup in Russia and Adolf Hitler hosting the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936. It was made at a UK Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on Wednesday by the opposition Labour MP Ian Austin. Putin's going to use it the way Hitler used the 1936 Olympics. The idea of Putin handing over the World Cup to the captain of the winning team. I'm afraid that's completely, me with, right. well, that's completely right. The idea of Putin using this as a PR exercise it's, to gloss over the brutal, corrupt regime for which he's responsible fills me with horror. But what has filled the Kremlin with anger is the embrace of that comparison by the government minister attending that hearing. We heard from him uh, interrupting there. The British Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson. I think the comparison with, with 1936 is, is certainly right and... Uh, I think it's an emetic prospect, frankly, for, uh, to think of Putin glorying in, in this sporting event. Given Mr Johnson's choice of uh, that adjective emetic, something which causes vomiting, it may seem somewhat ironic that the UK Prime Minister Theresa May is expected to raise the question of Russia's actions over dinner at today's EU summit in Brussels. Well, the UK is hoping for a European show of solidarity. In response to the case which has brought the rhetoric to such a pitch, the poisoning of the former double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in the English city of Salisbury earlier this month. Well, within the past hour, Russia's ambassador to Britain, Alexander Yakovlenko, said that Britain had no proof that Russia was involved in the Skripal poisoning. On 14th March, the Prime Minister gave another statement where she announced an expulsion of Russian diplomats and other hostile and provocative measures against Russia. She provided no proof of Russia's alleged involvement in the incident and made a conclusion that, as she put it, it was highly likely that Russia was responsible for it. Thus, the British government again built an official position, and I want to stress it, official position on pure assumptions. And the ambassador went on to express his anger at Boris Johnson's comparison from Wednesday. Moscow considers this kind of uh, statements unacceptable and totally irresponsible. The British government is free to make a decision about its participation in the World Cup. But nobody has the right to insult the Russian people who defeated Nazism and lost more than 25 million people by comparing our country to Nazi Germany. That goes beyond the common sense. And we do not think British war veterans including those of the Arctic convoys, would share this opinion. 
We're joined now from Moscow by our correspondent Sarah Rainsford and from Brussels by Adam Fleming. And Sarah, let's start with you. And uh, if there is one subject that Russians feel extremely strongly about, it's the Second World War. This has touched a raw nerve, hasn't it? It has a very raw nerve, and I assume that Boris Johnson would have known that. Um, but certainly the reaction from here in Moscow was immediate and was very strong. We heard, first of all, from the foreign ministry, the spokeswoman there, Maria Zaharova, uh, describing Boris Johnson, the British foreign secretary, as poisoned by hatred and malice, uh, calling him unprofessional and loutish to compare Russia, which she said, or which she reminded him, had sacrificed millions of lives in the fight against Nazism. And she said comparing Russia to the Nazis was utterly unacceptable. And we've heard very similar words from the Kremlin today. The spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, saying it was completely disgusting and not worthy of a foreign minister. He said it was offensive and unacceptable to make such a comparison. Because, as you say, a very raw nerve. I mean, particularly uh, in the last few years, Russia has really... Uh, hailed the victory in the in World War Two as as almost like its national ideology. It's something which is paraded at every moment, and it goes so far even uh, as to some extent to rehabilitate Joseph Stalin as a war leader rather than to remember his crimes uh, in the 1930s in particular. And conversely, since we're looking at this in the context of East-West tensions, to feel that Western countries have never really, certainly in modern times, paid enough respect to Russia for that. Well, that's right. If you talk to uh, average people in the street, you often get uh, told that British or Western uh, schoolchildren don't know anything about the Soviet sacrifice or indeed the Soviet role at all in the Second World War, which isn't true, but it's certainly something which is which is very deeply uh, believed here. And I think it's because it's something that people are told here uh, every day that the Soviet sacrifice was enormous, which of course it was, and that nobody in the West appreciates that and that uh, the West thinks it won the Second World War the way the West thinks it won the Cold War and the West apparently thinks it won everything. So it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a real um, sensitive topic and it's something which uh, is discussed and, and, uh, and, and put forward uh, on many occasions. Adam in Brussels, Theresa May is, is, has already had expressions of support from European leaders. What, what exactly do you think she's hoping for this summit? So there will be a dinner tonight at this summit in about four or five hours' time where this is on the agenda and the other 27 leaders are waiting to hear an update from Theresa May on the the latest on this case. What the Brits want is an expression really clearly of solidarity from the whole of the EU. Now, we had that already on Monday when foreign affairs ministers met and issued a statement saying that they strongly condemned the attack. I think the Brits would like that language to be upgraded to something even even stronger than that. And their focus is on getting this statement and proving to Russia that there is solidarity across the whole of the EU. One British diplomat saying to me, yes, President Putin is tough and pretty brutal, but actually he still cares about what his neighbours think. And if 28 of them combine tonight to issue a strongly worded statement, then that will be heard and will be felt in Moscow. Does uh, Boris Johnson's comparison in any way complicate matters? I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but at a European summit, you don't mention the war. I mean, it's just it's just not the done thing. Uh, people wouldn't make those comparisons themselves. One thing that I think we will not get tonight is any new measures from the EU. Uh, the, the consensus in Brussels at the moment is to wait for the process that's underway with the chemical weapons watchdog, the OPCW, for that to run its course and to provide conclusive proof 
about who was behind this attack. That is what leaders are waiting for. So they're happy to offer solidarity and stand shoulder to shoulder with Britain, but they want absolute concrete proof before they take their own actions. And then it's worth remembering that national security is still a thing that is dealt with mostly by the individual countries themselves. Uh, it's where the EU's powers are quite limited. So it will be important to see how individual countries react. And for example, the president of Lithuania, she's just arrived on the red carpet at the summit. She was asked, would she follow in the footsteps of Britain and expel Russian diplomats from Lithuania? And she said, absolutely, she would consider that. So while all the focus will be on what the EU says as a block tonight. Keep an eye on what individual countries do over the next couple of weeks as well. Adam, uh, in Brussels, thanks very much. Just one final thought to you, Sarah. Um, the, the tit for tat obviously is already underway with uh, Russian diplomats going, British diplomats about to leave. I mean, how do you characterise that relationship at the moment? horrendous at the moment. I mean, the language that we're hearing is something I've never heard before. And, you know, relations have been bad for a very long time. But certainly, I think uh, it's not going anywhere good. Um, at, the, at the moment, though, as I say, horrendous, uh, the, the kind of language we've been hearing, the insults, in fact, uh, that are flying both ways are now unprecedented. Sarah, thanks very much. Sarah Rainsford there in Moscow. We heard from Adam Fleming in Brussels as well. Now, it's six months since Hurricane Maria devastated the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. The disaster quickly slipped out of the headlines, but aid agencies say that life for many of the island's three and a half million residents remains a day-to-day struggle. Well, as Aline McBull now reports from the central town of Morovis, there is resentment towards the U.S. government for what many Puerto Ricans see as a lack of urgency. For much of the day, Felicita Rivera, who's in her 80s, lies in bed connected to a respirator, the tube going directly into her windpipe. She's relied on it for years, but never has that felt so precarious as it does now. Since Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico six months ago, her home, like so many others on the island, has had no power. The little generator frequently breaks down, fuel for it is expensive, and Felicita's daughter, Carmen, has very evidently been living under incredible stress trying to keep her mother alive. I've been crying all the time. I thought my mother would die because I couldn't help her. It's horrible. Me and her are struggling so much to fight this situation. Maria was the most devastating hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in living memory, plunging more than three million people, all American citizens, into darkness and into a humanitarian crisis. The problem is many are still living that crisis. There's a widespread feeling here that the U.S. response has been slow. I stand with Kateria Vega and look down a slope in central Puerto Rico, Just minutes after she escaped it, the might of the storm pulled away her family's villa from the mountainside and dumped it in a crumpled mess below. It's still there. The families run tubes from a nearby spring to get water to the abandoned building where they've been living. And there's still no power here, too. So what help has her family had from the American relief agencies? We applied for help, but we were told we weren't entitled to any, she says. We've put in an appeal, but we're still waiting for an answer. Many have had help making their homes habitable after the massive amount of destruction, but for a lot of people that's been little more than blue tarpaulin to cover holes. Many thousands with the means have left the island, and Puerto Ricans are able to move freely to the US mainland, but they're also entitled to the same disaster response as any other Americans. You'd find few here who believe that's what they got. 
It's hard not to wonder if this primary school had been in Texas or Florida, whether the children would have gone this long without electricity. The suffering in this territory of the most powerful nation on earth continues. And that report from uh, Puerto Rico was by the BBC's Aleem McBull. Just to let you know, later on in the programme, we'll be returning to our main story, that deepening diplomatic rift between Moscow and London as uh, Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, heads to the EU summit in Brussels, hoping for a show of European solidarity. I've been speaking to the foreign minister of an EU country that borders Russia, Estonia. You can hear that interview later on in the programme. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from our studios in London with James Kamarasamy. Coming up later on in the programme, a harrowing BBC investigation into the tragic fate of some Rohingya refugee children, girls in their early teens in eastern Bangladesh. Some women came and spoke to me. They asked me, will you go with us? They said, we'll give you rice, we'll get you married and we'll give you beautiful clothes. I told them, I'll go. They took me to a building in Cox's Bazaar. And after a few hours, they put two boys in with me. They raped me. Reminder of our headlines at this hour. Syrian rebel fighters are leaving a besieged town in eastern Ghouta in an evacuation deal brokered by Russia. We'll have more on that later on in the programme. And one of Ukraine's most famous MPs, the former pilot Nadia Savchenko, has been arrested after being accused of plotting an armed revolt. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. There's been a service of remembrance and a minute's silence in the UK Parliament today to mark the first anniversary of the Westminster attack, which claimed the lives of five people. It's just gone quarter to three. We have had reports and there's been a security incident uh, outside uh, Westminster. Very close to the gate, there was a person lying on the ground with somebody pointing what I assume to be a gun. Uh, a body, and when I looked further up there was another body. When I looked over the side of the bridge there appeared to be a body in the water. And it appears that a car mounted the pavement on the south side of the bridge and uh, you know, did deliberately strike into uh, numerous individuals. The very latest we're hearing from here is that a woman has been pulled alive from the River Thames, just uh, to my left here at Westminster, alive but with serious injuries. Uh, we're just at the Since 2.40 the- this afternoon, the MPS has responded to an incident in the area of Parliament Square and the senior national coordinator has declared this a terrorist incident. Well, the attacker Khalid Massoud drove a van into pedestrians on Westminster Bridge before stabbing a police officer, PC Keith Palmer, who was guarding the Houses of Parliament. It marked the beginning of a deadly few weeks here in England with Islamist-inspired attacks on London Bridge and at a pop concert in Manchester and a deadly assault by a man who drove a van into a group of Muslims in North London. But it all began a year ago, close to the seat of the UK Parliament. And one of those who sits there, an MP from the ruling Conservative Party, Tobias Elwood, found himself at the centre of events. He told me what he remembers of that day. The abrupt change in, in what happened in Parliament. This is a busy, bustly place. Division bell went. MPs were all moving towards the main chamber to vote. 
And then we heard something that you just never anticipate to hear ever, let alone in Parliament, and that's the sound of high-velocity gunshots, which, of course, caused the understandable panic and chaos and people running and scared and moving. And then I found myself near the scene of the incident and the police that uh, do an incredible job here in the British Parliament of, of sort of working with us as a community, guarding us, working with tourists and visitors and so forth, moving into an operational mode and ending up forming a gun line of about 30 police officers all in a line facing the incident itself, protecting Parliament's intrusion could be made. And then seeing beyond that, PC Keith Palmer, the police officer that had been stabbed, losing an awful lot of blood, and, and that's when I stepped forward. So it was the heroism of the police, really, and switching so quickly into their operational function, which is incredible. What sort of mode did you go into? You're a product of, I think, your own experiences in being an ex-regular and, and a reservist, where I have to each year go through medical and other training and so forth. I did want to help in some form, and when I could see that medical attention was required. That's when I, I did move in front of the gun line rather tentatively, making sure they saw me and uh, to show that I was going to go forward and, and then offer to help. And there were already a couple of officers trying to stop the blood flow, a huge loss of blood. And I said, can I, can I help? Uh, I'm medically trained. And they said, tell us what to do. So they immediately recognized their own limits of what, what, what was required. And looking back at it, 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 that training kit clicked in and you end up sort of coming out with you know orders and lines and bits and pieces of telling people to strip the kit off, make sure 999 was called, that the ambulance and so forth would be on their way. And then there was 40 minutes worth of, of you know, trying to save his life. And very sadly, you know, we arrived with a pulse and very sadly um, the injuries were so enormous that that wasn't possible this ca- on this occasion. 40 minutes of trying to save his life. You must have been physically, mentally absolutely drained at the end of that. It was. And what was also interesting was by this point, the entire area around Westminster, around the British Parliament, was sealed off. So again, an an eerie silence came over an, an area where you're so used to the noise of car horns and engines and everything and then suddenly there was absolutely nothing and then the professionals the doctors and by this time an ambulance had landed right opposite in parliament square doctors had come out when the time of death was then called i I actually didn't want to stop I, i was sort of ordered to stop i didn't want to be that person to make that judgment they picked up their bags in their professional way that they do and ran onto the bridge itself because of course i didn't appreciate this at the time but Masood, the terrorist, had actually mown down a number of other people, and they required help. And so these doctors and, and medics that had worked with me moved on to deal with them, and I was then left you know, looking at a very strange situation and uh, scratching my head as to what more we could have done. Yeah, and I wonder what that must have been like. You're someone in the public eye, a member of parliament, you're used to, to being in front of cameras, to talking... But at that moment, I guess, for those 40 minutes, you were just one man amongst a small group trying to save one person's life. When, when things came to an end and you stood back and you suddenly realised what had happened, what were your thoughts about the whole day? I think a couple of reflections. I mean, firstly, is this amazing professionalism, I think, of anybody who actually wears the police uniform you begin your day, you go to work, you say goodbye to your loved ones. You have no idea how your day will unfold, what drama you may have to endure. 
and uh, a huge tribute to the professionalism of the British police, and I'm sure it's across the world, of those who are every day, day in and day out, just doing their duty, and uh, that's quite incredible. I think the second reflection is is that, very sadly, I lost my brother in the 2002 Bali bombing, also from extremism, from al-Qaeda. And I think the frustration I have is a, a sort of wider question as to why it is that we collectively, internationally, are not doing more to prevent the hijacking of what is a peaceful religion, how people can still be recruited, indoctrinated with this false promise of a fast track to paradise if they conduct these awful activities. And I, I think there's some big questions for us because this won't go away. We This was the first of a series of attacks on British mainland and we've seen this across Europe and elsewhere and it's a common occurrence in, still in the Middle East. And I think that's a, a wider, deeper question for Britain and other nations to discuss. Well, has British society, has... British government learnt lessons from what happened a year ago? I, I think we have. Firstly, we will never allow terrorism. They want to try and break down our community barriers. And actually, when the, these events happen, they actually, oddly enough, have the ad- adverse effect. They actually unite people. They bring people together. The Manchester attacks, you actually saw taxi drivers not charging anybody, but to get people, ferry people home. You get other good people step forward. The community comes together deliberately to try and heal, but also to deny the terrorists what it's trying to do, which is actually to break these communities down. So we have a, a resolution to endure, to stand up and be ever more determined to defend our way of life. Final thought on, on your own personal experience. You are very keen to, to stress that you're not a hero, that it was the police who were there doing their job that day who were heroes. I, I do wonder, though, whether your colleagues have looked at you differently after this, whether you've sensed that at all. I think that's for them. I don't know. It's a, the reason why is that because obviously we didn't, we weren't able to keep them alive, and that for me is something that you know I have to live with, and others do as well, because we did get there, and we had a pulse, and and that is something. So, people have been very kind in their comments and so forth. I think the one thing it has encouraged is that anybody, any individual, just with a little bit of training, a little bit of instruction, might find themselves in a situation where they can be more useful because there's lots of people that want to actually step forward but can you be constructive or will you just get in the way that's for us all to sort of consider is what more that we can do to help out in situations and uh, we're not measured so much by our successes but how we we deal how we cope when things go wrong and i think this was a good example of that the british member of parliament tobias elwood uh, remembering events of a year ago today in westminster you're listening to the bbc world service this is news hour coming to you live from london with james kamarasamy this is the bbc world service the news follows shortly after this Two women with a shared experience. This title of First Lady you get by virtue of marriage. And like with all unearned privilege, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. I had to deal with both practical things and stuff within the family and everything changed. A unified spirit. I went out of the building with my white skin. That was a really good time to contemplate by myself. You just accept your blindness and then there's no looking back after that. Or a matching talent. I wanted to become an elite gymnast, so that requires more hours. So then I had to start homeschooling. I grew up in a communist system. For me, gymnastics was a door opener to the world. I'm Kim Chakanetsa, and each week we bring together two women from different parts of the world, united by a common thread. 
the conversation. Listen online or subscribe to the podcast at bbcworldservice.com. Coming up next, Syrian rebels leave a besieged area near Damascus. First, though, a Turkish businessman with close ties to President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is to buy Turkey's largest media group. The titles in that group include the respective CNN Turk channel and the newspaper Hurriyet, and it's been seen as holding a relatively independent editorial line at a time of increasing clampdown on the media in Turkey. Well, the group is being sold by Doyen Holding, and I've been speaking about that sale with Andrew Finkel, who's an Istanbul-based journalist and founder of P24, a civil society organisation which supports press independence in Turkey. The Doğan Group was historically the big media owners in Turkey. They were very powerful during the 1990s. They were very much the political kingmakers. But the landscape in Turkey changed. Media actually became devalued. You can no longer really use your media to put pressure on the government. In fact, the government put pressure on the people it did business with to buy media in order to support it. So the media is really very much emasculated in Turkey. So what outlets are there for opposition voices? The opposition voices are are really very thin and far between. There is a one or two newspapers still existing, including Jumhuriyet, the country's oldest newspaper, but they're in dire financial straits. In many ways, the opposition has gone to the internet. So there's now internet portals which try to be independent. And of course, there's social media. But the government, in a proposed piece of legislation, is trying to clamp down on them. So it's a really very black picture ahead for for those who are still trying to do independent journalism in Turkey. And plenty of journalists are still detained. I mean, it's not simply a case of uh, uh, outlets being silenced, but, but journalists themselves. That's exactly right. There's over 150 journalists in jail, which makes Turkey by far the greatest jailer of journalists. And this is really despite Turkey's own constitutional court standing up for journalists and saying that these pretrial detentions were wrong. These people never should have been tried in the first place. We have a bizarre situation where the lower courts are deliberately ignoring the decision of Turkey's own constitutional court to keep prominent journalists in jail. And uh, Mr. Doyne himself, just tell us a, a bit about him and, and, and where he once sat in the firmament. He's a man who, who started very humbly. He was a car salesman. He, but he acquired a long time ago uh, the newspaper Milliet, and that really became the sort of foundation of his fortune. He used the power of that newspaper very well. It, it, was, a, it was an independent voice, but it was a voice which always sort of, you know, nudge towards supporting whoever was in power and bartering that support. And during the 1990s, Aydin Doğan was, was really very much the kingmaker. Before a government was formed, the, the potential partners in a coalition would come and visit him just to, to get his support. He was a sort of almost a Berlusconi in Turkish politics. Um, he never actually went into politics himself, of course. But he saw that power decline. And at one stage... Because of his opposition to the government, he faced a fine in the billions of dollars equal to the, to the market cap of his parent company. That really clipped his wings and tamed his voice and his opposition to the government. And that was Andrew Finkel. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour coming to you live from our studios in London with James Kamarasamy. As Syria's civil war has slipped savagely into its eighth year... 
The recent focus of the fighting and the international cries of concern has been the Damascus suburb of eastern Ghouta. It has remained stubbornly under the control of the shifting band of rebel groups for a long period of time, but today... There has been movement, movement in fact on buses because for the first time rebel fighters and their families are being evacuated from the area. Under a Russian broker deal, fighters from the rebel group Akhra al-Sham agreed to lay down their weapons in the town of Harasta in return for safe passage to the mainly rebel-held northwestern province of Idlib. Syrian state television says that 27 fighters are among 200 people to have left the town so far. Well, Allah Ibrahim is a journalist in Damascus who works for Syrian state television and international media. The departure or the evacuation of these rebel fighters out of Halasta signals the beginning of the end for rebel control in this particular part of the country. This is the first faction to agree to such a deal, and many believe that the other factions will soon follow, given the fact that the Syrian army has been able to make substantial gains on the ground, given the fact that their ability to hold their defense lines has been diminished greatly because of the tactics that the Syrian army is using, in addition to the relentless airstrikes from the and the Russian air forces. And does this agreement on the part of the rebels mean that they've actually agreed to lay down their arms or are they keeping their arms and just moving to a different place? No, actually, this is a repetition of a very typical agreement between government and rebels that we have seen in uh, several areas across Syria. The agreement is usually, and this is the case also in Halasta, it allows rebels and their families to leave the area they control and head towards either Edleb, which is uh, the province north of Syria that is under the control of the rebels, or head to other areas areas controlled by the rebels, but mainly in the past few occasions it was Idlib province, and they would go into that province with their light weapons and their families, with their essential or let's say precious belongings like gold or money or other other things, and they would leave the city completely or the town or the area. The Syrian army would step in later on and fully control that part of the country. And it seems that this is the deal that's ongoing right now in uh, the city of Halasta. Of course, this deal includes rebels fully surrendering at their heavy and mid-sized weapons and uh, actually allowing civilians uh, wanting to leave uh, Halasta a way out of Halasta if they want to do so. And in terms of the broader fight for Eastern Ghouta, as you say, it's been divided into different zones of influence. This one zone seeing this kind of surrender and and movement of the the rebels, how does this play into the broader government offensive to try and retake Eastern Ghouta as a whole? Many believe that once this deal goes goes through and it goes through smoothly, other rebels would soon ask for a repetition of this deal in their areas in eastern Ghouta. Because as I said before, unless someone steps in from the outside, unless like for example the United States would carry out a military strike against the Syrian government, it seems highly unlikely that the rebels would be able to fend off the Syrian army attacks to regain eastern Ghouta. It seems highly unlikely that they will be able to actually secure a better deal than the one that is being implemented today, which ensures them the safety of their lives, the safety of their families and to keep their like essential belongings. So once this deal goes through smoothly, other rebel factions would be more inclined to accept such an arrangement to leave areas they control. The influx of people leaving Eastern Ota, the civilians who started to leave Eastern Ota, I think in the past week, now we've seen over 20,000 crossing into government-controlled parts of the country. People who remain inside Eastern Ota are pressuring the rebel factions inside to agree to such a deal, to end the bombardment, to end the fighting, and to actually end the situation that has been ongoing for seven years inside uh, Eastern Ota. The beginning of the end, potentially, then, of, of what has been one of the, as you say,
say, one of the longest sieges of this war. Again, this is not a very fair assessment of the situation. Eastern Water is not one of the longest sieges of the Syrian conflict. The longest siege of the Syrian conflict is the one of Fuhan Kafei and Idlib province north of the country, where it has been besieged effectively, I think, since 2015, while Eastern Ghouta continued to receive supplies through tunnels and through other means of supplies and receiving, like, routine shipments of aid, humanitarian aid, from the United Nations operating in Syria. But it is actually, it's the beginning of the end of one of the longest chapters of the Syrian war, one of the most important strongholds for rebels near the Syrian capital, Damascus, and throughout Syria, actually. The moral significance of this gain for the Syrian government, if it is achieved completely and the government would completely regain Eastern Ghouta, something that many believe would happen in the upcoming weeks, it is very close, actually, in its significance to what happened in Aleppo 2016, which many believed to be a clear indication that the government has a decisive upper hand in the fighting across the country. The Syrian journalist Ala Ebrahim. Now, we've heard a lot about the plight of the Rohingya refugees who fled Myanmar for Bangladesh last year, but some of their stories still have the power to shock. The BBC's Michelle Hussain has discovered through an investigation in the Cox's Bazaar area, where more than 800,000 Rohingya now live, that children, girls in their early teens, are being trafficked and forced into prostitution in eastern Bangladesh. Well, one of the girls she spoke to was 14 years old. She'd crossed the border alone after parents were killed in Myanmar. And she told Michelle what happened immediately afterwards. Some women came and spoke to me. They asked me, will you go with us? They said, we'll adore you, we'll make you study, we'll give you rice, we'll get you married and we'll give you beautiful clothes. I told them, I'll go. I didn't know what they would do. They took me to a building in Cox's Bazaar and after a few hours, they put two boys in with me. They showed me a knife and punched me in my stomach as well as beat me because I wasn't cooperating. Then they raped me. I didn't want to have sex, but they kept going. The women kept me for two days. And then at six in the morning, they sent me back to the refugee camp. They said, she's not useful, take her back. And they sent me away. That is the story of a 14-year-old girl. Dr Rosena Allen Khan is a British Labour member of Parliament who's visited and worked in the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh. It's an absolute tragedy upon tragedy. If you think of what these young women and girls have escaped over the border from in Myanmar, they have fled to somewhere that they think would bring them safety. And now they find themselves in the most vulnerable of positions. And with news of sex trafficking occurring in the camps, it's not hard to imagine how the situation can only get worse. And it's likely that criminal enterprises will be continuing to operate. The scale of the issue in the camps is just rife. And I know that you've been there recently, and I'm sure you've probably seen the same sort of thing. Well, that that was the story of one particular girl. But there was another girl who's you know, parents agreed for her to be taken away on the promise of a job, which tells you something else about the the precarious conditions that these people are in, where work and some kind of income to to support themselves is is so incredibly important. 
80% of the camps are made up of women and children and they have lost absolutely everything. And when I think as a parent how I would feel if my family were in that situation, I'd never want to feel that I was putting my young children in harm's way. But you want to do everything that you can to ensure that you can feed and clothe your children. The, the conditions are so squalid. And imagine now how you would feel as a parent thinking that you had put your children in harm's way, only believing that you wanted the very best for them. These camps are huge. There are almost 800,000 refugees there. The NGOs need to be afforded the access that they need to be on the ground, to have their finger on the pulse of what's going on because they are the eyes and the ears. And also we need to be able to support the police um, in order to do their job in Cox's Bazaar and crack down on these awful, awful people who are doing this to the most vulnerable. Yeah. Of the I mean, isn't it more about the Bangladeshi authorities, about public safety and the prevention of crime than it is about what the aid agencies can do? I think it's a two-pronged approach. It's firstly identifying where it's happening and the scale of what's going on, but then also ensuring that the authorities have the means that they need to tackle it. The British MP, Dr Rosanna Allen-Khan, speaking to the BBC's Michelle Hussain. Now, one of Ukraine's most famous MPs has been stripped of her parliamentary immunity and arrested. Prosecutors accused Nadia Savchenko, who is seen by many Ukrainians as a war hero, of planning a coup. We're joined now from Kiev by our correspondent there, Jonah Fisher. A remarkable fall from grace, Jonah. Just remind us, first of all, who she is. An incredible fall from Grace. Nadia Savchenko was a uh, a military pilot, a navigator in the Ukrainian armed forces. When the war broke out uh, in 2014, she was captured uh, on the front line in eastern Ukraine. She was taken to Russia and she became famous here in Ukraine for the defiance uh, that she showed while in custody in Russia. And when she was eventually released uh, nearly two years later, she was fated as a real war hero uh, back here. She was given the highest uh, award possible by the president here. Uh, she was appointed an MP almost straight away. So she had a had a massive public profile. Some people were even talking about her as a possible presidential candidate which makes it all the more remarkable what has happened today, which was a hearing in Parliament in which video evidence was shown. Uh, and in that evidence, uh, Nadia Shev- Shevchenko, Shev- Savchenko was shown uh, discussing an armed coup, an assault uh, on the Parliament uh, here in Kiev and plans to kill the president uh, and various other senior leaders within the government. And that's something that Ms Savchenko, when she had a chance to put her case She didn't try and deny it. She just said, we do need to have a change of government here. It does need to be overthrown. She didn't, at any point, as you might have expected, throw some doubt on the authenticity of the video or question what was going on. She said, well... Yep, that's me. That's what that's what I believe has to be done. And well, it wasn't a great surprise then to see her immunity stripped. uh, And within about 10, 15 minutes after that, she was detained. Fated as a as a war hero, as you say, I remember the parliamentary election. I think she was she was elected in absentia while she was still a, a prisoner in Russia. What do people think about this there? I think at the moment they regard it as something uh, of an amazing oddity. Uh, 
It's fair to say that uh, Ms. Savchenko's stock had fallen quite considerably over the last couple of years before these uh, coup plot allegations came to the fore. Uh, She particularly infuriated people by uh, the contacts that she insisted on having with uh, the rebels uh, in the east. Uh, That went against what what the government here wanted to to see her doing. So she'd fallen out pretty catastrophically with uh, the leadership here, here in Ukraine already. I think many people regarded her as being erratic. I think her performance today in Parliament when she was she sat there laughing, smiling through all the allegations that, that, that were made will just confirm that. She she did go outside and, and embrace some of her supporters before uh, she was taken away by the authorities, but she doesn't have a great deal of support, not within Parliament. Her own party voted for her immunity to be stripped from her, uh, and there wasn't a great sign uh, of large numbers of people coming to support her outside Parliament either. Yeah, incredible tale there. Um, Jonah, thanks very much. That was uh, the BBC's Jonah Fisher there in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. They're bringing us up to date on uh, that uh, remarkable turn of events there with Nadia Savchenko from uh, War Hero to someone who's now under arrest, stripped of her parliamentary immunity over those accusations of plotting a coup. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is News Hour coming to you live from London with James Kimarasamy. Reminder of our top story this hour, the row between Russia and the British government over the poisoning of a former Russian double agent with a nerve agent has deepened. The Russian ambassador to the UK, Alexander Yakovlenko, has strongly criticised suggestions by Britain's foreign secretary that President Putin wants to use this year's Football World Cup in the same way that Adolf Hitler used the Berlin Olympics. Nobody has the right to insult the Russian people who defeated Nazism and lost more than 25 million people by comparing our country to Nazi Germany. That goes beyond the common sense, and we do not think British war veterans, including those of the Arctic convoys, would share this opinion. One other headline, Syrian rebel fighters are leaving a besieged town in eastern Ghouta in an evacuation deal brokered by Russia. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Are we seeing the first skirmishes in a full-blown trade war between the world's two largest economies? Well, in anticipation of an announcement by President Trump of new tariffs against China, the government in Beijing has today warned of potential retaliatory measures. The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Hua Chunying told a news conference that the two countries benefited from trading with each other, but that China would defend itself. We resolutely oppose this type of unilateral and protectionist action by the US. China will not sit idly by while legitimate rights and interests are hurt. We must take all necessary measures to firmly defend our rights and interests. We hope the US can clearly see that the nature of China and US trade relations is to mutual benefit and a win-win. I've been hearing more about what the Chinese are saying from the BBC's Robin Brandt in Shanghai. They say this is just the latest evidence of a country acting against the rules of 
global trade, a, a country uh, acting in a, a protectionist way. And they point uh, in a rather timely way to a WTO ruling today, uh, which went against a tariff set by the Obama era, really. And they say this is evidence that the US repeatedly abusing the system. I have to say, it's pretty brazen coming from the Chinese. Uh, in the past, uh, they have denied, for instance, that they use uh, public subsidies for many of their exporting firms. But the WTO uh, said today that is indeed the case. So the, the Trump administration has a point. Yes, and it's always had a point. One of the biggest criticisms uh, about China since it acceded to the WTO in, in 2001 has been that it has not uh, led to that promise of a, a market-led uh, economy. It hasn't played by the rules that it insists everybody else has played by. And that is particularly the case when it comes to subsidies of, of big Chinese firms who export, be that steel, be that aluminium, be that solar panels, and the fact that they uh, use uh, repeatedly benefit from big subsidies provided eventually by these big state-owned firms, the Chinese government. Do the Chinese authorities have a sense of what's coming down the line from the United States? Yes. I mean, I think since, you know, January uh, last year when President Trump came to office, they knew that things were going to change. And there is much support for that among Chinese business leaders uh, here in China because they think for years the U.S. has been fairly weak. They constantly talk to you about the need for reciprocity in terms of market access. Chinese firms investing in, in the U.S. should mean that U.S. firms coming here to China should be treated the same way. But the rules in particular industries are very different. The Chinese don't allow some foreign firms in some industries. In automotive, for instance, they insist that these companies, be you Ford, General Motors, enter into joint ventures. They often insist that you share your technology, uh, you transfer uh, that technology. And that has long been a huge gripe for these big multinational uh, foreign firms who, look, think they have to be in China, but they hate the terms and they just don't frankly think it's fair. That was the BBC's Robin Brandt in Shanghai. Let's return now to our main story today, the uh, diplomatic row between Britain and Russia and the hopes of the UK Prime Minister to get a show of solidarity at today's EU summit in Brussels. Well, Prime Minister Theresa May had this to say on her way into that summit. Russia staged a brazen and reckless attack against the United Kingdom when it attempted the murder of two people on the streets of Salisbury. I'll be raising this issue with my counterparts today because it's clear that the Russian threat does not respect borders. And indeed, the incident in Salisbury was part of a pattern of Russian aggression against Europe and its near neighbours from the Western Balkans to the Middle East. I've been speaking to Sven Mixer, who's the foreign minister of Estonia, an EU country which borders Russia. I asked him what his reaction was when he learned earlier this month that a nerve agent had been used in Europe for the first time since World War II. A terrible incident, and obviously one should uh, look at it at the background of the Litvinenko incident that happened several years ago. So we see already a pattern emerging, and it's a very worrying pattern, I would say. So I think that it deserves very strong and united response, uh, not just by the UK, but, but also by the broader community of democratic nations. Do you think that Mrs May will get a statement, a show of European unity at this summit? Well, I'm uh, very much sure that, uh, that she will get a statement expressing the full solidarity of the European Union and the European Union leaders. Uh, but obviously, uh, as the investigation is proceeding, I think that we should also think of what we do beyond just making statements. Uh, I think that we should do everything that we can to, to see that nothing like this is ever allowed to happen again. The Russian government says that the, the British authorities have 
jump to conclusions before careful analysis has been done on the substance which poisoned Mr Skripal and his daughter. What do you say to that? The facts, as we can see them, speak very loud. We have a former Russian spy attacked by a nerve agent that is known to be produced uh, in Russia. We should uh, be able to draw some conclusions. Obviously, attribution is always a challenge, uh, but uh, I definitely share the the assessment of the UK government and, and my colleague Boris Johnson. Do you share his assessment that the World Cup will be used by President Putin the way that the 1936 Berlin Olympics was used by Adolf Hitler? I wouldn't use any analogy, but, but basically I would agree with, uh, with the assessment that it is going to serve uh, Putin's propaganda goals. What then would you like to see happen? A country like yours, which has experienced an act of, of aggression from, from Russia, a cyber attack, as well as others. What do you actually want to see done in response to this? Well, I think that uh, we see a cruel and, and ruthless uh, leadership in the Kremlin today. The language they understand is the language of strength and unity. If Putin sees uh, indecision and division, he will rush to exploit it. I think that we have re- responded to the uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine in the in absolutely the, in the appropriate way by putting in place uh, sanctions, uh, as well as actually putting in place uh, a new NATO deterrent poster uh, in the easternmost uh, allies' territories. I think that we should, uh, in principle, respond to. Um, new provocations in a similar manner. But there are plenty of voices in Europe saying, hold on, we, we, we need to maintain a relationship with Russia. It's a big, important neighbour. And there are plenty of people in, in Europe who are pretty friendly with President Putin. Your call for unity, are you confident that it will actually amount to anything in practice? Well, it will uh, take hard work 24-7, obviously, to maintain the unity. But I'm pretty impressed by the way that this unity has been holding when it comes to, for example, the sanctions against Russia that were put in place uh, many years ago now. Putin uh, and and his leadership definitely did not expect uh, the unity regarding sanctions to, to hold so strong and so long. And that was Estonia's Foreign Minister Sven Mixer bringing us to an end of this edition of the programme. From me, James Kamarasamy, and the rest of the News Hour team, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.